Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Daniel. I'm an alcoholic, drug addict, and uh, I know a lot of people in here tonight, and uh, they gave me such helpful advice as don't screw up as I walked up here. Um, But that means, you know, I'm going to repeat myself, and I know a lot of people have heard me talk parts of my story or snippets of it, so it's the same story I've always had, so get to hear it again. And, um, you know, there's a lot of drugs in my story, and I know this is an AA meeting, and we try and focus on that here, and... um, you know, there's stimulants. I'll just say something about that up front. And uh, there's a couple of places in my story where there's kind of no way to not talk about the drugs because they were, they changed the course of what was happening to me. But I'll try and keep it to that. And, um, you know, it was stimulants and depressants and opiates and a whole bunch of stuff, but nothing did to me what alcohol ended up doing to me. You know, all those other drugs, no matter what their reputation was or you know, what the physical consequences of them, like, I'm here because of alcohol. And it snuck up on me, I thought, at the time. You know, if you would have given me a list and said, hey, stack rank the things that are going to end you, you know, I wouldn't have put alcohol on that list. And it just kind of came out of nowhere and finished me off really quick. Um, So I'll try and keep it to just about that stuff. And like my friend Mike says, you know, uh, I don't speak for AA. You know, I'm just a guy in here, like everybody else, trying to do this stuff. And, um, you know, the program has no opinion on outside issues, uh, but I got a lot of opinions about all kinds of stuff, and uh, I will try and keep them out of the perspective if I can, but sometimes they come in anyway. Um, I got sober in California. I'm not from Seattle, but I got sober in Santa Cruz, California in 1989 when I was 22, and uh, last November it was 25 years clean and sober, thanks to AA. And uh, a lot of times people come to me and they say, oh, that's so great. You got sober young and you avoided all these problems. That must have been so nice. And I have to tell them, well, it didn't kind of work out that way exactly. But, you know, AA was here and up and running for 50 years by the time, you know, I was the 11 millionth alcoholic to walk in the door. And it existed and it worked. And there was a infrastructure of people and ideas and process there that I could fall into that allowed me to get sober. And if it hadn't been here, I really don't know what would have happened to me. Um, you know, just like Megan was saying, I, I have a perfect family. My parents are still married to each other. I'm the oldest of four. You know, we live in an upper-middle-class white suburb of, you know, I can walk to the beach, and there's a golf course at the end of our street, and I went to private school, like all this stuff. You know, why was I an alcoholic? You know, it wasn't anything that happened to me or didn't happen to me. And I really like that idea, you know, in the doctor's opinion that this isn't therapy. I don't need to go back and find out what my mom did or didn't do to me to turn me into an alcoholic. You know, I'm an alcoholic because all things being equal, I'd just rather be drunk. (laughs) You know, like it just feels better. You know, like I just like that feeling. And even though there were consequences and there was all kinds of stuff that added up over time in my life, like, I didn't care. I just liked that feeling so much. I talked myself into doing it over and over again, even after it got bad. And uh, I got drunk 
for the first time, like people always say, I don't remember my first day of school. I don't remember the first car I drove. I don't remember the first girl I kissed, but I remember the first day I got drunk, you know? It was at the uh, Hudson's Barbecue on the 4th of July, and there was four or five families there. So there was a bunch of kids about my age, 13, 14, a lot of chaos. And there were those Coleman coolers that all the parents filled up with ice and beer. And I finally, like, powered my way through, like, two Budweiser's or a Michelob or something that we pilfered out of those things. And I can remember that feeling coming on for the first time, you know, like, finally getting that, oh, this is why they do that. Oh, okay. Because I was just trying to act older. There was a couple older kids there who knew this game already. And I was trying to act like I knew what was going on. And when I finally got that feeling coming on, I went, oh, yeah, I get it. And, you know, I didn't know that I had kind of uncorked something. You know, this disease is all over my family. You know, like I don't know my either of my uh, biological grandparents, my grandfathers, because this disease got both of them. You know, one of them was... Uh, physically abusive SOB apparently as the story goes and just left one day and um, the other one died violently as a direct result of being intoxicated in a Boston snowstorm and falling down some stairs and cracking his head open and dying from that lying out in the snow all night you know but he was infamously known for being drunk and so he died from alcoholism even though that's not what it said on his death certificate and so you know, just like I have to put sunblock 50 on my Irish skin every time I go out in the sun, I picked up a couple of other little gifts from uh, my Irish heritage that I didn't know about at the time. And, you know, those two Budweiser's lit the fuse on that. And, you know, it was off to the races. I really only drank and used for about 10 years, which isn't that long. You know, I know a lot of people and I've heard a lot of stories. And, you know, that's just the first inning for a lot of people by the time they get in here. But by the end of that time... I was convinced I was an alcoholic, and I had hung out with the four horsemen enough that I didn't want to hang out with them anymore. You know, it was not fun anymore on any level. It wasn't, there was no more party phrase being uttered about that. Um, you know, it, it didn't start off like that. Um, it, it was fun for a little while. It was manageable, um, but after I got in the program and I went and looked back, you know, alcohol was... <clears throat> always an intoxicant like that's why I drank it it wasn't for flavor you know when you're 14 years old and you're drinking it's not because you're like well what goes with pork chops what should we have tonight you know like it's you're like I'm drinking that stuff because I want to get drunk and that's why I want to drink it you know and you don't have a lot of like someone raids their parents liquor cabinet and it's like oh you got the green stuff that kind of tastes like lifesavers and you know that's the stuff they won't miss okay well not ideal but great give me some, you know, it was like that, like, that's the kind of mindset that was different than, like, I was going after it, I was chasing that feeling of, I want that stuff in me because the way it makes me feel, which, like, normal people don't have that same kind of edge to it, Um, and that was there from the beginning, even though the consequences weren't there, that underlying approach to what this stuff did for me was there right from the beginning, and, You know, I was a pretty good student. All the stuff people talk about, I hear all the time. You know, people say, if he could just focus, like, he's smart, but he just can't focus. And, like, if I was interested in something, I was interested in it. And if I wasn't, I wasn't. And there was nothing you were going to do to make me be interested in it. And so school was up and down, and sometimes it was good. But by the time I got through the end of high school, I had to go to summer school to graduate because my last two years I was just 
going to school and getting high and doing hallucinogens at school, which makes it a little hard to, you know, follow a curriculum of education while you're in that state of mind. Um, and, you know, it was starting to get worse. You know, that was only like three or four years, and I was already having consequences and kind of not caring what they were. You know, it was just like, oh, well, whatever. It was that self-centeredness and like, I know what's right and your rules aren't going to confine me and all that stuff. But really, that's alcoholism, you know, underneath all of that stuff. Um, after high school, um, I kind of free-falled a little bit. I didn't know what I was going to do. I couldn't go to school. I didn't have any grades. I just kind of bounced around and drank a lot, smoked a lot of weed, did a lot of drugs until I kind of stumbled into a situation where someone suggested that I do, in retrospect, which was a, a geographic cure, where I moved from Santa Cruz to San Francisco. And I thought that sounded like a great idea. That sounded like a lot of fun. You know, I didn't really have anything going on where I was. And they said, I know somebody who has a room to rent. You can come up there, maybe start over. And that sounded like a plausibly believable story I could use to go up there. And... You know, San Francisco is a lot different than a sleepy little beach town um, on the coast of California. You know, it's a lot more urban. It's just different. It has a different vibration to it. And, um, you know, I found the same people I knew in the town I came from. I found them in San Francisco, too, you know, because they're everywhere. And I was 19 then, and uh, I discovered there was all kinds of places you could go drink. And they didn't really care. There were certain parts of town where they never carted you no matter what. And I could go there and drink in bars and wasn't that sophisticated. Look at how grown up I was, you know. Um, and the atmosphere and the stimuli and all that kind of stuff pushed my progression. I was getting closer and closer to that, you know, those tire spikes on parking garages. Like you can only drive over them one way, but you can't go back. <laughs> I was getting closer to driving over those, the equivalent of those in my disease, you know, where I was going to cross that point and I could never come back and I didn't know it. Um, and finally I had an, an episode where I basically I overdosed in front of some people who I actually cared about this, the same person that had helped me move to San Francisco. And it was, you know, I, I did the classic alcoholic thing. I just showed up. It was literally Christmas Eve, and they were in their Christmas sweaters singing Christmas carols, and I showed up on their door, you know, just after drinking and doing stimulants all day long and said, you know, Merry Christmas, here I am. <laughs> and they were compassionate enough to kind of not, you know, just kick me out and leave me on the street, and they kind of babysat me for the night and the next day or two. And then they sent me home, and a couple of days later, this woman came and said, you can never, ever come back to my house again, you know? And that was the first time I had ever really, you know, in, like, I didn't even care when I did that stuff to my parents, you know? I just didn't, I didn't have that same kind of connection there. But this was a person who had literally done everything she could do to help me. And, like, that's how my behavior was when I was like that. I just wasn't a nice person when I drank and used, and I couldn't not drink and use. But she was the first person to say to me, there's something different about you when you're like this. We don't like it. You can't come around anymore. You have a problem. You need to go talk to somebody. Like, there's something wrong with you. And no one had ever said that to me before. And no one who I gave a damn about had ever said that to me before. And so it really set me back, you know, and it really made me think for a second. And so I went off and found a free clinic in San Francisco, and this very nice woman named Jean, who was a recovering heroin addict, sat across the desk from me and 
let me go on for 15 or 20 minutes and tell me you know, my tale of woe about all the reasons why the, my life was terrible. And she said, yeah, you're a drug addict and an alcoholic. And I thought, what do you know, lady? You know, <laughs> Lady working in a free clinic <laughs> you know, for drug and alcohol counseling who's a recovering addict. What do you know? You know, you just met me. How can you possibly do that? And, you know, I went and saw her a couple times because I was scared. You know, fear sobered me up for a little bit. And she was the first person that said, you know, here's there's these meeting things and you should go and talk to these people and just go see what you hear. And I went to my first meeting in another program and I didn't get it. You know, I, I didn't really understand how I fit in there. And it was it was on the edge of the Mission District in San Francisco, and there was, like, girls with tattoos on their faces and stuff, and I was just like, yeah, this is not for me. I don't understand. I, I knew the words that they were saying, but I didn't understand what they meant when they put them together the way that they put them together. I didn't understand what they were talking about. I was just like, how do I, how do I, how do I fix my life? You know, how do I stop doing the stuff that I'm doing over and over and over again? How do I not do that? And I couldn't hear that. So fear sobered me up for a little while, and I kind of sort of behaved myself, you know, occasionally with little dips. But, you know, the progression was progressing, you know, and I had no idea that that's what was happening. You know, I didn't get that there were like a bigger set of events had already been set in motion that I couldn't think my way out of. And I didn't have the skills. You know, I was in that spiral of I only have one solution, which is keep getting loaded and that didn't work, and then that made more problems, but the only solution I had was to keep getting loaded, which makes more problems with the only solution I have. And so I was starting to hit that flat spin of stuff like that, where I couldn't get out of it with anything that I knew how to get out of it with. And um, I kept making bad decisions that seemed like great ideas at the time. You know, I quit a really stable job for one that um, – paid me in cash every day and it was either feast or famine. So I either got a whole bunch of cash that I walked out the door with in my pocket or I didn't get anything. And I moved in with a bunch of guys that were basically junkies, except I didn't know that at the time down at 10th and Folsom in San Francisco. If anybody knows that part of town, it's not really a residential part of San Francisco. Um, (laughs) And, you know, things got worse, shockingly, you know, and, um, they introduced me to some other stuff. And the whole time, like, I'm drunk by noon every day. You know, I'm smoking weed every day, for sure, without a doubt. And I, I'm definitely drunk all day long, just drinking. And there's just background drug use and drinking all day. And these guys had a friend who started showing up, and he had a bunch of prescription pills. And he's like, they said, well, here, you want to try some of these? And this was pre-Oxycontin days. This was Percodan and Percocet and codeines and Dilaudid and stuff like that. And, you know, 90 milligrams of uh, codeine, nine, you know, Tylenols, and a bottle of red wine and a couple joints. I liked that. <laughs> you know, I liked that a lot. And, um, and I've heard variations of this story other times. So that was all very nice and very easily compartmentalized. Because it was pills, right? It wasn't anything crazy. Well, then the pills went away, and one night this guy comes around and goes, I got this other stuff that's basically the same thing. You know, you want to try some of that? And I said, sure. That, okay, why not? And, like, that's the same kind of mentality of, like, hey, all we got is the green stuff from my mom's liquor cabinet. Like, 
when I did my first step and went through the list of all the things that I did, basically it was anything that I crossed paths with. There was never a time where I went, oh, that thing that you make out of like brake cleaner and acetone? Yeah, I don't want any of that in my body, thanks. I said, sure. You know? <laughs> and there wasn't a drug that had a reputation. Like I was crossing a very bright dividing line and I didn't even think twice about it. You know, I just went, okay. And that whole mentality of about, you know, that approach, regardless of what the substance is, even if it isn't a heavy-duty substance, that doesn't matter. Even if it's just going from beer to scotch or whatever, that underlying kind of approach to the whole thing of, I just want to get high. This is a thing that's going to get me high. Show me how to do it. You know, like, let I want to try it. Let's do that. So I got high with these guys on dope, and I really liked that too. And so now I'm living in this place where my income is sporadic at best, and, you know, I'm getting higher and higher every single day and on stronger and stronger stuff. And then I just stopped going to work because I couldn't really work anyway. And I don't have money for next month's rent. I don't really know what I'm going to do. And these guys are coming around with, like, legit drugs where I know I'm in trouble because I can't really go, well, let me go through my history of drinking and using and pull up all the times that I used restraint and you know, moderation in my history of things that I found out I like to do. Like there just wasn't that time I could look at and say, oh, this will turn out okay. I Like I was legitimately scared. I had the overdose thing behind me. I had this other stuff. And I realized like I don't know how to get myself out of the situation that I'm in. You know, I, I'm really, I swam too far away from shore. Like I don't know what to do. And my only solution was to keep swimming. You know, like I... I just was like, well, we'll see what happens. I'm going to keep going. And, you know, there was a girl who hadn't come around for a while, and she kind of came and visited me, and she said to me the same thing that this other woman said, like, what is up with you? What is going on? Like, you're not the same person. I haven't seen you for two months, and I don't even really even recognize you. And she did an intervention and got me connected back with my parents so that I could do yet another geographic cure to get out of the situation that I did the geographic cure to get into in the first place. Um, and the idea was I was going to come back to my hometown, patch everything up with my folks, go back to school. It was all going to be great. And the first weekend I came back, I got taken to jail for being drunk in public. I was in my kitchen at the time, which was an interesting little variation. <laughs> but my brother actually called the sheriffs because uh, he hadn't seen me for a year. And when I came back, I was a lot different. And I got drunk that night, and he was, like, really freaked out about my behavior and wasn't even really sure, like, what was going on with me. And it was like a party, and they might have been there anyway. But I got, like, I did the same handcuff thing, you know. They really don't like, like, handcuffs. You slide them out under you in the back of the cop car. Yeah, they pull over. And uh, <laughs> I did that same thing. Uh, and uh, that was my first... You know, that was the beginning of my successful return to like, hey, I'm going to go get my life back together. So <clears throat> all the drugs were gone. I, I f was patting myself on the back for dodging the bullet of all the stuff that I was afraid was going to happen to me when I lived in San Francisco. And this is where alcohol said, oh, it's my turn? Okay. <laughs> and, I, you know, I'm used to getting this high. I take all the stuff away that I was used to getting that high with because I was scared. And I just replaced it with alcohol. And I didn't know that that was 
a thing that happens to, you know, drug addicts and alcoholics. I was substituting drugs, you know. The behavior didn't change. The amount I used didn't change. My overall approach to life didn't change. All I did was say, oh, no, I'm going to not have, I'm going to trade this problem for this problem, and I'm just going to drink instead. And I must have, you know, that's when I drove over those tire spikes. You know, there was no coming back after about three months of that. So about four months later, the same sheriffs came back to the same house, and I was in a blackout because in that period of time, because of how much I was drinking, and it was almost exclusively alcohol. I was drinking, like, those gallon jugs of Carlo Rossi Burgundy. It was all very sophisticated and very classy. Um, and then at night, I'd start drinking something else, like, you know, mixed drinks or whatever. And so I was having blackouts, and I didn't know what those were. I didn't understand how I just couldn't remember or how people were telling me that we had conversations that I could have sworn, like, there's, I don't remember talking to you that entire night. I, four people said I interacted with them. Like, those hours are gone, just completely not in my head. But apparently I was up and walking around. So those started getting weirder and weirder and weirder. And I started getting more violent. And I, you know, my, that whole flat spiral of, like, I don't know how to solve my problems except to make the problems worse by drinking and using, I was completely in free fall on that. And so... That's what got me here, is the cops came, I was in a blackout, I was non-compliant, as they call it, um, <laughs> and I ended up going to jail that night by way of the emergency room and waking up in the same little private cell that was mentioned earlier, and the, uh, not the same one, but a similar one, and uh, I got charged with assaulting a police officer and resisting arrest and all this other kind of stuff they threw in just because... And I was in real trouble, you know, and a couple days later, I met with the public defender, I got booked and the whole thing. And he said, I think I can get you out if you agree to go to rehab. And I had had like 72 hours of jail, and I didn't even know what he was talking about. And I said, yes, just, <laughs> you know, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't even know what he was talking about. And um, he made that happen. But I had to go within 48 hours, I had to go check into a rehab and tell the court where I was, and it was kind of like house arresty kind of thing. And if I left rehab, they put a bench warrant out for me and that kind of stuff. And so I ended up in a treatment center, you know, and just dazed and confused, to put it mildly, you know. I was the youngest person in there by like 15 years for the first week or two, and then somebody else my age came in. And that was my introduction to all of this, you know, and I started learning names for some of the stuff that I had done. And, you know, all that stuff that got me in there, even today, I don't think that's the stuff that make, made me an alcoholic, per se. You know, like, the, you cannot have any of those things and absolutely be a stone alcoholic. You know, it's not about any of that stuff. It's about what goes on up here. So I was sober for about six months, and I, you know went back to court and I promised never to swear and bring all my library books back and look both ways when I crossed the street. And, um, I got into a sober living facility and I got a job and things were great, you know, and that lasted about six or seven months. And I mouthed off to the woman who, um, was running the treatment center. Uh, I mean the sober living facility that I was living in and she kicked me out. And uh, I moved in with people who dealt drugs, thinking that wouldn't be a problem at all. And, you know, like 12 minutes later, I was loaded. And, uh, <laughs> you know, three months later, I got arrested again, 
you know, trying to score drugs. I had never went back to finish up my court stuff. So I had a warrant out for my arrest when they got me. And, you know, I'm sitting back in jail again going, how did this happen when it was inevitable and obvious, you know, from the moment I picked up again? And so to me, the thing that makes me an alcoholic is that after being arrested, after losing all these jobs, after going through rehab, after going to sober living, after doing all that stuff, I thought it would be a good idea to start drinking again. You know, that is the insanity of alcoholism. So I had never done the I'm never going to drink again, I swear pledge, but I had said out loud to multiple people, I am never going back to jail again, ever. And there I was. Like, it, was, it wasn't even hard for me to get back there. It was like just a matter of time. And, but I had five days to sit in there this time, and I, could, I was just sitting there thinking. I had enough of the program in me. I had been to a bunch of meetings you know, for a couple months. I had been in the sober living facility, introduced me to some people that were like two-strike felons in California, you know, 25 years older than me. I, they were little time machines. They showed me what the rest of my life was going to be like. You know, they were 40 years old. They were unemployable. They were in the same boat that I was in, living in the same place. And almost nothing had changed in their life from where I was to where they were. There were some details that changed. They had some jobs and some relationships, and they lived here and they lived there. But the underlying thing that had not changed their entire life was their issues with alcohol and drugs and addiction and recovery. And I saw that. I saw how insurmountable and how non-negotiable this thing was. And I realized... You know, at first I was really cocky. I was like, how do these guys, like, what's wrong with these guys, man? Why do they keep ending up like that? Don't they see? And then here I was in an orange jumpsuit eating bologna sandwiches again. Like, it was a train coming at me from the moment I picked up again, and I never saw it coming. And I would have argued with you that that's not going to happen. And the light bulb went on, and I went, oh, that's how this happens. That's how I turn into one of those guys is I walk out of here like I was wronged with a chip on my shoulder and an attitude like I'm going to get it right this time and then I'm going to wake up when I'm 48 and go, wait, I'm still here, you know, like nothing changed. So I didn't want that to happen and I realized I tried it my way, I tried it their way and then I tried it my way again and like that's, I did step one in there and I went, all right, you know, I can't do this. And um, <laughs> there was a fellowship hall like Fremont in Santa Cruz and uh, that you could still smoke <laughs> and it was loud and it was noisy and there was really crazy people in there still gets to me you know and uh it sounds really corny it sounds like an after school special or something you know but I literally walked out of jail over to the fellowship hall and I raised my hand and I said you know I'm an alcoholic and I'm a drug addict and my name's Daniel and there was a bunch of people there that had stayed sober the whole time that I hadn't and they were like glad you made it back good to see you you know and I started hanging out with them and you know there was people I talked to the day before I went into jail that I literally have never talked to again in my life you know I didn't try and do the maybe I can walk both sides of the fence maybe I'll go like I just said I am done I'm not talking to those people from that world ever again if I cross paths with them okay 
but I can't just look over the fence and still stay sober. Like I just couldn't do it. So I moved in with clean and sober people who were really, really serious about recovery. The good thing about Santa Cruz was that there was a lot of people who got high with their parents for the first time when they were really young. So by the time they were 20 or 21, they had been through the ringer and they were done and they were really serious about recovery. And I got a sponsor and I went through the steps with them and I went to a ton of meetings. My first year, all I did was I had this really crappy job driving a forklift and I would wake up, go get all sweaty and dirty driving the forklift, loading pipe on a truck, come home, eat something, take a shower, go to a meeting, come home, go to sleep, wake up, go drive a forklift, come home, eat something, go to a meeting. Like, that's pretty much all I did. And on weekends, go to three or four meetings, not hang out with any of my old friends, not go to the places that I used to go where I, you know, I knew it was my hometown, basically. I knew everywhere I could go to get drugs easily. I would, I would not go see people, and I would still see people because it was a small town. I could not run into them. But I made a very conscious, very clear decision that I was an alcoholic, you know, step one. Like, there was no way that I was going to figure this out. There was no way. It was insurmountable. It was just like me trying to drink gasoline for the rest of my life. You know, that's, you know, gasoline is made out of something I can't process. No matter how much I want to think differently, I can drink a hundred cups of it and it ain't going to change. And, you know... That's the part where AA was up and running for 50 years, that all I had to do was kind of fall back into it, you know. And I met people who were able to explain these thoughts that I had in my head that I couldn't even articulate. Like, I never met them, and they would come up, and they would talk about stuff. And I would go, that, how did you know that that's the thought that I had? Like, I've been trying to figure out how to put that into a sentence for a long time, and you just said it, and I've never met you. How do you know how to do that? Like, what's going on? And the more stories I heard, even if I hadn't done all the stuff that people had done, I could totally relate to everything that they talked about. The inside stuff, not the, you know, I, I went over here and did this crazy thing and I crashed that car and did all that kind of stuff. I love hearing that stuff too. I can totally relate. Like I know when the punchlines are. I know when to laugh Like because it, it's funny. But that's not the stuff that I really identified with. It was more about the way that people thought, you know, always being different. The rules don't apply to me. You know, I got this, I can figure this out. And then the frustration and the loneliness and the shame and the guilt of like realizing that I don't and my only solution was to keep getting high. And there I was again doing it and not just stuck, you know, just stuck, 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 stuck. Um, so it's really easy when I tell the story in 30 minutes to go like it was really crappy and then the miracle happened and everybody lived happily ever after and it's awesome now, you know, and you know, that's part of speaker meetings. Um, and it's true, you know, like my life, there's my life before a and my life after. And, you know, that, that forklift job turned into another job, which turned into another job, which turned to working at Microsoft for 10 years and being married and buying houses and like doing all this stuff that there was absolutely no way that that guy that was living in San Francisco was ever, ever going to do, you know, no way in a million years. Um, and that's all because of the stuff that I learned how to do here and kind of really comes back to step one of, you know, this thing, there's no middle of the road solution. You know, for me, it's very binary. I can either do this thing, you know, the way that, you know, the spooky way that this guy wrote down that like totally works no matter who does it, you know, I can do that or I can do it my way. 
and die an alcoholic. And those are like the two choices. And, you know, being around here um, for 25 years doesn't make me smarter or better or anything like that. But I don't know if you've ever seen Star Wars with somebody who's watched it like every week since they were 12 and they just know every line. Like they just know how the movie goes, you know, and I know how the movie of alcoholism goes and it always ends the same. Like the Death Star blows up at the end every single time I watch that movie. Every time that's what happens. So I see all of that stuff. I see all the things we try where we try to be different and we try to be special. And we and it's like, dude, you're on the Death Star. You just don't know it, you know? And I don't want to be on that anymore. And there's a way to not be on that. And as long as I do that, like my life is amazing and awful. But it it means I have to think a little bit different and I have to do stuff like this. You know, this isn't the first meeting that I went to today. Like I went to another one. But I don't feel like I'm doing something anymore. It's just like I folded it into my life and it's stuff that I do because, you know, I don't want to be another name or just faceless body on the pile of alcoholism. You know, it's one enough as far as I'm concerned. And I really believe that this thing works. Like I've seen so many people change and so many lives be different. Um... Uh, that it's it's not even a question. It's like the sun rises in the east and recovery works. You know, <laughs> like it's that level of understanding for me. Um, but, you know, the happy ending part is I don't get a free pass anymore, you know, because I've had a couple days under my belt doesn't mean, was it a meeting yesterday and a guy was talking about somebody with 22 years that went out, another person with 30 years that went out, you know, like that can still happen to me for sure. And if I go... 72, 96 hours without a meeting, I start thinking some really weird stuff, you know? Like, it's so weird, it surprises me. It's like, how can I get that weird from, you know, going to a meeting four times a week to not doing it and get that crazy that quick? Start believing just nonsense in my head, you know? And that's alcoholism. Like, I will always have it. And, you know, luckily, I was born in a time where this thing is here, you know? It exists, And, you know, I'll just, like, I don't always say higher power when I share and all that kind of stuff, because to me, like, there's no big book thumping. It's like, if I came up here and said, hey, if you're trying to, if you're an alcoholic, that's anonymous, you probably shouldn't drink today. You know, like, I put, you know, having a sponsor, working the steps, developing that conscious contact with a higher power and doing it out of the book and going to a bunch of meetings, like, that's the same as you shouldn't drink today. Like, it's the same level of stuff. It's all the same thing there isn't like the not drinking and the other stuff it's like it's a package deal and you know to the extent that I've been able to do that I've been able to stay sober and be happy and not be crazy and not you know have the four horsemen come back in sobriety and and mess with me Um, and it's all you know I can really tell the quality of my day-to-day situation by how plugged in how plugged in I am to this thing. So I just feel super grateful and super lucky that this thing exists and that it's here if I want it. And you know, so far by doing stuff like this, you know, just sharing what happened to me with other people, you know, it helps me plug in and it helps me remember where I came from and it makes me want to keep coming back. So whoa, look at that. Perfect. So thanks for letting me share.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.